This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. There are 27 bones in the hand. Eight of these are in the wrist. We pretty much take them for granted until they cause us pain, and there are certainly a variety of disorders that can result in hand or wrist pain, not to mention the injuries that can occur from hand or wrist trauma. With us today to discuss hand and wrist disorders is Dr. Peter Amadio, an orthopedist in the Division of Hand Surgery, Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome, Peter. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start out by talking about one of the most common wrist disorders, uh, at least ones that I see, and that's carpal tunnel syndrome. How do these patients typically present? Well, carpal tunnel syndrome, as you say, is the most common hand and wrist problem that affects literally millions of people. There's a lifetime risk of probably 15 or 20 percent of people will eventually have symptoms of carpal tunnel syndrome. Not all of them present to a doctor, but many of them do. So uh, typically the way it presents is as numbness and tingling in the median nerve distribution. Carpal tunnel syndrome is a compression of the median nerve at the wrist. And so the symptoms really need to relate to the median nerve at the wrist. And if you remember your anatomy from uh, medical school, the median nerve innervates the thumb, the index finger, the middle finger, and the uh, radial side of the ring finger and just on the palmar aspects and does not innervate, the median nerve also innervates the palm, but that's a branch that comes off before the carpal tunnel. So if there's compression in the carpal tunnel, which is at the level of the wrist crease, there shouldn't be numbness in the palm. Uh, and uh, the other thing that the median nerve innervates in and distal to the carpal tunnel is the muscles of the, of the thenar eminence. So the symptoms that you would expect in someone with carpal tunnel syndrome, compression of the median nerve in the carpal tunnel would be numbness in the thumb, index, middle finger, and sometimes the ring finger, and weakness of the thenar muscles. Initially, this will be intermittent, usually numbness and tingling. The patient uh, very commonly will say, it bothers me when I hold a telephone or I'm driving the car or um, I'm uh, reading the newspaper, reading a book. Um, it'll wake them at night and they'll notice numbness and tingling. They very classically will shake their hand to make the symptoms feel better, so that's a mm -hmm. question you could ask. So that's the typical thing that presents. It's not really pain. Sometimes patients will describe it as pain, but typically carpal tunnel syndrome is not really a painful condition. It's, as I say, it's a compression of the nerve and the symptoms are related to what that nerve innervates. Does the weakness occur later in the course, or is that as early as the uh, paresthesias? No, typically the weakness occurs later because it requires some denervation of the muscles for the weakness to uh, be uh, noticeable, and that's something that happens late when the compression is more constant. So initially, as I say, the symptoms will be intermittent, maybe just wake you up, or you'll notice it when you wake up once a week, once a couple times a month may have occasional symptoms during the daytime, but as the symptoms become more constant and the numbness becomes more constant, then you really have to worry about increasing severity, and that's really when you get into the weakness of the uh, thenar muscles. The patients may complain of something like weakness. They'll say they drop things, but if you pursue it, you'll find that it's really, they can't feel them as well. Mm -hmm. I've seen a few patients who've kind of put off these symptoms for a long time and actually has some atrophy of the thenar muscles. Yes, yes. Originally, when carpal tunnel syndrome was first described, which was in the middle of the uh, 20th century, 
um, patients would typically present very late. They might even have ulceration on the fingertips because of severe numbness and marked phenar atrophy. Nowadays, I think more people are aware of it, and they come in much sooner. It really got to be well-known among the general public back in the 1980s and 90s when it was thought to be caused by things like typing and mm -hmm. people were coming in wondering whether this was a work-related problem. And so it was very, very popular. In fact, we found in our epidemiological data at Mayo Clinic, looking at the Olmstead County population, where we have really good data, there was a spike in the incidence of carpal tunnel syndrome in the 80s and 90s, but it was also associated with a lower severity hmm. of disease. So, And then there was kind of a drop in the incidence of new cases in the subsequent decade, but that was kind of a catch-up because people who typically would have presented in mm -hmm. the early 2000s were presenting five or 10 years earlier with milder symptoms. So are individuals at increased risk if they do a lot of things with their hand and wrist, like knitting or computer keyboard? Does, does that have anything to do with the condition? Not much. If anything, it's the hand that uses the computer mouse that may be more oh. likely to mm -hmm. be affected. It really, typing doesn't really seem to uh, have very much of an effect. There was a study here at, at Mayo Clinic, uh, Arizona, looking at hours spent keyboarding and uh, incidence of carpal tunnel syndrome and there really wasn't very much of a increase and of course as I say it's very common if you look in a community and you actually send surveys to individuals at their homes rather than waiting for them to come to the doctor you'll find that many people have symptoms of carpal mm -hmm. tunnel syndrome and it's just as I say which ones uh, decide to present for medical attention mm -hmm. and there was this uptick in people presenting for medical attention in the 90s for example but as I say that was all with much less severe symptoms yeah. that probably wouldn't have otherwise presented except for the publicity. There's kind of a progression of management or treatment for carpal tunnel syndrome. Exactly isn't there? yes yes definitely so typically what I do if I suspect somebody has carpal tunnel syndrome I might ask what they do how they use their hands I always ask what people do with their hands because that's my job as a hand surgeon but and see if there are any particular activities that might be aggravating the carpal tunnel syndrome. And these would be typically things where you're pinching or gripping with the wrist flexed um, because that increases the pressure inside the carpal tunnel. And uh, or if they're doing some activity on a long for a long time, like if they're knitting for like five hours at a stretch without a rest or keyboarding for a long time without a rest. Um, uh, and I might say, well, or playing a musical instrument without a break. And I say, well, just take some rest breaks. It doesn't have to be very long. There was an interesting study um, from uh, Johnson & Johnson. I didn't realize this, but sutures that we use in the operating room for many, many years, they were actually hand-woven onto those little hmm. uh, things, those little really? packets. Yeah, and that. people were paid piecework. <laughs> and so, you know, they would get paid for so many cents for every one they did. So there was an incentive for them to do a lot. And then they would have trouble because they weren't taking rest breaks. And actually what they found was just a couple minutes every hour rest break was enough. But what they had, Johnson & Johnson was the company that was involved had to do was actually prorate. So in other words, I'll pay you, you know, I'll, for, uh, you know, the 55 minutes, I'll prorate that up to an hour so that you get paid the exact same as if you had been working for an hour, but you only have to work for 55 minutes. And it was worth it for them because the, the reduced uh, problems mm -hmm. that they had. So uh, activity modifications, definitely something uh, to talk about with patients. And then uh, usually I'll offer people a brace to wear at night. And for various reasons, symptoms seem to be aggravated at night. And so wearing a splint on the wrist uh, at night it can be very helpful. And during the daytime, it can actually interfere with activities and make activities more awkward, so I don't recommend that. But wearing the splint at night can be very, very helpful. So that would be the first step. 
there's good literature to suggest that if that is going to work, you'll know within several weeks. So there's no point to try it for months. Mm -hmm. If they're going to notice a benefit, they'll notice it within several weeks. So typically what I'll do is I'll give them a splint and say, come back in a you know, few weeks or a month at the most. And uh, you can cancel if you're doing fine. But if you're not doing fine, then the next step frequently that I'll recommend is a steroid injection. Mm -hmm. And because that seems to work, although we don't know why, because there's not a lot of inflammation and it was originally uh, used for carpal tunnel syndrome because there was a thought that there was inflammation, but there's really not. And when we look at the histology of the tissues in the carpal tunnel area in patients, a lot of that was done in the past, but there's not much inflammation. So it's not really clear why the steroids work, but they do definitely seem to work. Almost always they have some short-term relief, and sometimes they can have very long-term relief. Again, a study we did uh, here at Mayo using our Olmstead County database showed that about 40% of patients have years of benefit in terms of not presenting back for any additional medical treatment after a single steroid injection for carpal tunnel syndrome. So it's not true that you just use it to confirm a diagnosis to see if the symptoms get better, but it really can have a long-term therapeutic effect in some people. In other people, the, the effect wears off. And so, again, uh, I tell people, if it's going to work, you'll know within 10 days or so. If it hasn't worked, then there's no point to wait longer. The next step would be to consider surgical treatment, assuming that the diagnosis is correct. And frequently, you might want to get electrodiagnostic testing before sure. referring for surgery. But so uh, splint, steroid injection, and then if uh, the patients haven't gotten better with either of those, and again, you'll know within a few weeks for each one, uh, then the next step would be uh, surgical decompression. Okay. Let's talk about decurvain's tenosynovitis. I've had this myself, and one of your colleagues took care of it for me with the steroid injection. Uh, how common is that? That's also fairly common. It tends to be more common, just like carpal tunnel syndrome is more common in women than in men. Probably, probably women work harder than men, and that's why. But, but, uh, but anyway, it's more common in women than in men. It tends to be associated with repetitive gripping and uh, twisting of the wrist, like wringing out a cloth or something, that kind of movement repetitively is frequently something that people will talk about. In fact, you know, I don't want to get too pejorative here, but it was originally uh, called washerwoman's wrist mm -hmm. because typically women would do this job, and before there were clothes dryers and things like that, people would just wring out the, the clothes to, to, to get rid of most of the moisture before hanging them out on the clothesline. And so this kind of repetitive activity uh, could occur in that case, and you'd get, um, or from uh, lifting a baby, for example, it's another common thing. Newborn mothers would mm -hmm. frequently get these symptoms from lifting the baby. And uh, so if we have the video podcast, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about, but because I'm moving my hands, but, but um, so uh, those kind of repetitive symptoms. And so initially, of course, if you notice the symptoms and you stop doing the repetitive, uh, repetitive activity, it frequently settles down on its own. If not, then again, the same sorts of things, splint, steroid injection, and then if neither of those are helpful, uh, then surgical decompression. But most of the time, avoiding the activity, uh, the splinting and the steroid injection uh, are helpful. One thing I've noticed with patients with uh, decorvain's tenosynovitis is that sometimes they'll get a kind of a ganglion cyst right over that area, mm -hmm. over the uh, uh, radial styloid, basically, on the radial aspect of the wrist. The people who have a ganglion cyst there, that's probably a more severe degree of synovitis, I guess. But anyway, it's been my observation that if someone gets that, they're a little bit less likely to respond to the non-surgical mm -hmm. treatment. I think it's still worth trying, but 
I've, I've found that that's been a marker of uh, less likelihood of yeah. success of non-surgical treatment. And what I recall when I had this, it was uh, it was a discomfort in the wrist with with use of the wrist. Is that how it presents? Yeah, basically, as I say, it's especially it's the tendons are the abductor pollicis longus and the extensor pollicis brevis pass under the extensor retinaculum at the wrist and the radial styloid. So it'd be anything that involves radial deviation of the wrist and extension of the thumb, basically. Okay. You mentioned ganglion cysts. Those are pretty common. Those are the old, what they call the, the Bible cysts, is that right? Yes, yes. Of course, you can get them anywhere. A ganglion cyst is a, basically a, a synovial cyst that arises. It can arise from a tendon sheath. Uh, you can f- find them in the palm of the hand uh, or, it, as I say, in the wrist uh, related to decrevains, uh, tenosynovitis, or they can arise from a joint and in the hand or wrist. They can arise from the wrist joint itself, typically on the back of the dorsal aspect of the wrist, but sometimes on the palmar aspect of the wrist. And of course, a mucus cyst, which is a degenerative synovial cyst that you get in the distal interphalangeal joints, is also a form of of a ganglion cyst. So um, the most common kind, again, it's more common in women than in men, would be a dorsal carpal ganglion. Typically occurs in younger people, 15, 20, 25 years of age, Uh, frequently comes and goes uh, and can go away on its own. And uh, so symptomatic measures are always an appropriate way to start, but if it persists for months or years and is particularly bothersome, um, sometimes something more aggressive is uh, indicated. You can try a steroid injection, although there's an aspiration as well, but there's literature to suggest that the response rate from that is about similar to the natural history. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that can be done is surgery, but again, you want to make sure that you do a, a proper balance of the risks and benefits because basically if somebody says, well, I just don't like the looks of it, well, you're going to be trading a lump for a scar, so that may not be a very reasonable mm-hmm. uh, trade-off of risks and benefits, but if it's particularly symptomatic, then surgical excision can be helpful probably in 90% of people. And I think the reason this got its name of a Bible cyst is People used to hit it with the family yeah, Bible. You could rupture it. You could, you could rupture it. Yeah. And, uh, and, of course, that's how the uh, aspiration works the same way. You mm-hmm. can just do multiple punctures and uh, aspirate it. Nowadays, frequently, people will do that under ultrasound guidance mm-hmm. as opposed to by palpation. And, uh, but, uh, as I say, it, it, that can work, but it doesn't appear to work a whole lot better than natural history because frequently these go by way by themselves. And as I say, they're pretty common in younger people. You don't see them very often in older people. I'm sure that all those younger people didn't all have surgery, so I'm assuming right. most of them go away on their own. Well, what's happening in trigger finger? Okay, well, trigger finger is a, a snapping finger when you make a fist, so it involves the flexor tendons in the palm. And uh, what typically is occurring, so you could palpate it in the palm where the finger joins the palm. You can feel a lump sliding under your finger and clicking or snapping and the patient will notice initially this kind of snapping or clicking feeling and eventually it might actually lock where they can't straighten out the finger without pulling on it. And what this is is a flexor tenosynovitis initially, some irritation which can be related to activity or just it's very common in older people so it's probably more of a degenerative phenomenon. And um, so uh, there's a, there may be a loss of lubrication of synovial fluid there. And for whatever reason, the, uh, the tendon begins to swell, and it catches on the ligaments that hold the tendon close to the uh, finger. If you, Again, remembering back to medical school anatomy, the flexor tendons in the finger basically fit inside this tight fiber sheath that's just as snugly fitting as a piston inside a cylinder of a car. Uh, and so 
Uh, it needs lubrication for it to work. And as I say, in older people, the lubrication system may fail. You get some inflammation, some thickening of the tendon, it starts to catch, and then a vicious cycle sets up. Okay. One of the things I see very often is some degree of Dupuytren's contracture. Um, and I've always wanted to ask a hand orthopedist this, so now I get my chance. It seems to me that the vast majority of them are proximal to the fourth phalanx. Is that true? Yes, yes. That's the most common finger that's involved in the garden variety kind of Dupuytren disease. We really don't know the cause of it. Under the microscope, it looks like scar tissue, but there's no injury, number one. Number two is it continues to create more and more scar tissue, and normally, of course, the scar matures and then stops progressing. So... Uh, it does tend to run in families. It tends to be more common in people of Scandinavian or Northern European, Scotch, Irish, uh, uh, ethnic background. Uh, not always so, but tends to be much more common in those. And the ring finger is the most common form. There's a very aggressive form that's associated with disease in multiple fingers, especially mm-hmm. on the thumb side of the hand, on the soles of the feet. The, the penis can be affected in Peyronie's disease, which is a very related uh, phenomenon. But the most common is the a nodule in the palm at the base of the ring finger. Yeah. And the vast majority really don't need any treatment. But I have had some patients where they actually had some contractures of their yes, fingers. And yes. they've required surgery. Correct. So it's simply a lump uh, in the palmar fascia. So it, should be, it would be fixed to the skin, not fixed to the tendon. This doesn't affect the tendon motion at all. But as it starts to uh, contract as a scar will... It'll pull on the palmar fascia, and that will eventually limit the ability of that finger to straighten out. And if that's just very mild, probably doesn't need any treatment. We typically use what we call the tabletop test, which is basically if you can get your hand flat on a tabletop or pretty close to flat, you really don't need any treatment for your Dupuytren disease. And again, it's not a painful condition. The nodule, nodule can sometimes be tender, but that tends to go away by itself. Um, but if you if it finger is bending down a lot, then patients will frequently complain. If it's their right hand, it catches when I go to shake somebody's hand or in either hand, I can't get my hand in my pocket or into gloves and things like that. Well, then it needs uh, treatment. And there are a variety of different uh, treatments that can be used. Um, Traditionally, it was a surgical excision of the diseased uh, fascia in the palm. And we still do that quite often. That's still the most effective treatment. Now there are some treatments that can be done uh, with a a needle, basically. There are two different kinds of needle treatment. One is simply to use the point of a 25-gauge needle kind of uh, as a knife and just use it to cut across the disease. You can do that in the palm. It's not very safe to do in the finger because of the digital nerves, but in the palm it's relatively safe. And then you can pop the finger out straight. Mm. Patients are very happy. You can do it in the office under local anesthesia. It takes a a minute or so, and they come in with their finger bent, and they go out with their finger straight, and they're very happy, and that's pretty simple. You can do something similar with injecting collagenase, an enzyme. It it takes about a day for it to kind of cook and burn through, if you will, the the, uh, diseased fascia, and then same thing with manipulation. It'll open out uh, straight. Uh, that's a lot more expensive because the drug is expensive and uh, uh, has a very similar result as it turns out. But uh, that's another way mm-hmm. to do it. Well, certainly osteoarthritis can affect the hand, and we see this quite often. But one of the most common locations and the one that bothers the patient the most is when it's at the base of the thumb. Do you have any recommendations for these patients? Yes, so that's extremely common. And uh, almost everybody has it. I mean, I have some. And uh, so... Uh, again, it primarily causes symptoms with pinching, uh, sometimes with gripping, again, with repetitive activities. And uh, 
almost everyone will eventually get it, but it depends on how much it bothers on what you do about it. So again, just like everything in the hand, the first order of business is to figure out how you're using your hand, what activities bring on the symptoms, and is there some modification that's possible for these activities that might alleviate the symptoms. So for example, uh, writing, people will complain. And so getting a really fat pen or pencil, it's easier to hold. The fatter something is, the less stress you put on the base of the thumb. Get a pen that where the ink flows out very easily as opposed to where you have to press hard. Just simple things like that. Um, turning a key in a lock. So if it's your right hand, uh, or your dominant hand rather, turning a key in a lock can be uh, um, an issue. And so make sure the locks are lubricated. Maybe change the um, door handle. So instead of having a door knob, you have a handle. It's easier to, to use. One of the things people used to complain about was that old kind of push button car door. Of course, we don't have those anymore. But, um, but uh, uh, so those kinds of things. Uh, trying to modify activities, but frequently building up like golf clubs, tennis uh, rackets, gardening tools, things like that, just building up the handle can be very helpful in helping to control the symptoms. There are some exercises that can be done to strengthen the muscles in between the thumb and index finger. Those tend to stabilize the base of the thumb and can help the symptoms. Uh, there are splints that can be used. Uh, many people don't like them because it interferes with your ability to use the hand, and so that's a way of enforcing rest, which most people would rather be using their hands. Um, so uh, we can do steroid injections. They typically provide some temporary relief, but can be helpful in some patients. And then rarely it's surgery is necessary. Mm -hmm. uh, that's for really severe uh, symptoms that are persisting and don't respond. As I say, the vast majority of people, probably 90% of people who come to a doctor with thumb carp metacarpal arthritis never need any kind of surgical treatment. Let's finish up with the most common injury that you've seen following a fall involving the hand or wrist. Well, that would probably be a distal radius fracture, mm -hmm. Collie's fracture, and it's very common. It's kind of a bimodal distribution, if you will. So there's younger people tend to get it. It's more likely to be uh, uh, males uh, from some sort of a sporting thing or fall from a height or typical things that young men do that probably they shouldn't do, but uh, and scaphoid fractures fall in that same category. But uh, And then the other is older people. And so the first is really a high-energy injury and the bone tends to shatter into lots of little pieces as a result because it is a high-energy injury, and uh, so surgical intervention is more often necessary to try to piece things back together. The other is an, an osteoporotic uh, bone in an older person, more times women than men because, again, women are more at risk for osteoporosis. And then it's typically a low-energy injury, just fall from a standing height and uh, and so, and it can be a sentinel event actually for osteoporosis. Right. So anybody who, especially an older person, anybody over the age of 50 or so has a distal radius fracture, you probably should check their bone density to make sure they don't have osteoporosis. But uh, there, the treatment can frequently be less aggressive because you have more to work with and there's, uh, the soft tissues are more likely to be intact. And so you can uh, oftentimes do a closed reduction, a mobilization for a month or so and gradually increase activity. So. It just depends on the severity, but it definitely is a, two different types of distal radius fracture. One, younger people, high energy, more likely to require aggressive treatment. The other is uh, older individuals, low energy, be sure to check for osteoporosis, and frequently can be treated less aggressively. Okay. Well, we've been discussing hand and wrist disorders with Dr. Peter Amadio, a hand orthopedist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Peter, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. It's my pleasure. You can hear many other recordings of Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts on a variety of topics at your uh, favorite podcasting app. 
If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.